Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 14. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's first symphony in C major, opus 21. Beethoven had not been quick to try his hand at symphonic writing. He had shown some early ability in writing for orchestra in those early cantatas which we talked about in episode 3. And of course his two piano concertos demonstrated some admirable fluency in that area as well. But symphonies were different, and he apparently felt some hesitancy to dive into that particular pool. By comparison, Mozart had composed all but his final three symphonies before reaching the age at which Beethoven completed his first. But by 1795, Beethoven had at least begun some sketches for a symphony in C major, interspersed with various contrapuntal exercises he had put together for his then-teacher Albrechtsberger, with whom he was studying counterpoint. Beethoven eventually shelved the project, but did produce in these early sketches a first movement theme, which Beethoven would later revise and employ in the finale of his completed first symphony, which he would dedicate to Baron von Schwieten, a great supporter of and sometimes collaborator with Haydn. The symphony is provided with the standard instrumentation of the day, two trumpets, two horns, two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, violins one and two, violas, cellos, basses, and timpani. And for the most part, it follows the established format of the period with its four movements. And it was well received for the most part, although there were some critics, and their basis for criticism would seem peculiar to a modern listener. Some critics took umbrage at the fairly brief, slow introduction to the first movement. What the critics objected to most strenuously was the very first chord of the twelve-measure introduction, marked Adagio Molto. I don't want to over-explain this particular criticism, since it relates to a harmonic practice which would be unlikely to raise an eyebrow for any 20th or 21st century listener. But for some early 19th century critics, it was apparently a concern, or at least was cited as a concern, by those critics looking for a way to disparage Beethoven's first symphony. So what is it about the first chord of the movement that was so controversial? It was a general rule that a piece should begin on a tonic chord, in other words, one built on the first scale degree of whatever key you're beginning in. So in a C major movement, you'd expect the opening chord to contain the notes C, E, and G. And it does here, but there's a catch, and it's an important one, or at least it was to some conservative critics of the time. Beethoven's opening chord, sustained by the winds, also sticks a flat seventh on the top of that C, E, G chord. In this case, the note is a B flat. That transforms the chord into a dominant seventh type chord, which has no place in the key of C major, but instead seems as if it's pointing toward F major. And in fact, it resolves to an F major chord. So it's really something that we've seen before on a number of occasions, it's a secondary dominant seventh chord. In other words, a chromatic chord that doesn't really belong to the key in which it appears because it's really, just temporarily of course, functioning in a different key as the dominant chord in that different key. So the first chord that Beethoven gives us is in effect a chord that doesn't belong in the key of C major. Was this really so exceptional? so upsetting that Beethoven's critics could justifiably reference it as a sign of Beethoven's incompetence. The great 19th century British musicologist Sir George Grove has claimed that the opening of the introduction would have, in its day, been considered audacious, and yet it's difficult for any modern listener to fully appreciate that fact. Although it was rare for a piece to begin on a chromatic chord, one not strictly in the key, it was not unprecedented. As many commentators have pointed out, C.P.E. Bach had famously begun a piece in the same way, out of the key, so to speak, and there are other less famous examples as well. Here's what Beethoven's introduction sounds like. Thank you. 
It is true that it takes a few measures before we hear a C major chord that actually sounds as if it represents the tonic chord. Three measures, in fact, after the gently undulating melody begins in the violins. But it's hard to imagine that many listeners would have been truly confused about the harmonic structure of the introduction, the comments of Sir George notwithstanding. It's perhaps more likely that the critics in question were bound and determined to find some fault with the works of a composer with whom they were displeased for some other reason. By the way, another criticism raised against Beethoven's First Symphony was the degree to which he emphasized the winds in his scoring, that it was somehow more wind band music than properly symphonic music, or that, as Swafford has noted, it was over-rich intuities, or passages for full orchestra, making for a sound tending to the overly monochromatic. It's a reasonable point, but as you'll soon see, Beethoven also makes use of a number of very effective passages for solo winds. The tone of Beethoven's introduction is alternately dramatic and wistful, but the first subject, introduced with a tempo change to Allegro con brio and a switch to alla breve as the exposition officially begins, is a very different matter. Although presented quietly in the first violins, the first subject has a military bearing to it, not unusual for the key of C major, due to its dotted note rhythms, staccato markings, and reliance on the notes of the tonic triad. Here's a simplified version of the first five-measure phrase. Three different components within this fairly simple phrase will have a life of their own as the movement proceeds. First, the descending swirl of 32nd notes that ends on the tonic and serves as an upbeat to the first phrase, which we'll call motive A. Second, the pattern of repeated staccato eighth notes, which you just heard in measure 3, which we'll call motive B. And third, the ascending arpeggio of a seventh chord in staccato quarter notes in measures 4 and 5, which we'll call motive C. After some sustained chords in the winds, which push the tonality temporarily up a step to D, the first violins repeat the first phrase. The wind chords return, with a chromatic inflection this time, and push us to the dominant chord, where the first violins, with a little more active support from the other strings this time around, provides a variant of its original phrase, crescendoing up to fortissimo and arriving at a solid cadence on the tonic. Let's hear an actual performance that far. At this point, since the movement is in sonata form, like most first movements in most symphonies of the period, we might expect Beethoven would introduce the modulatory transition and immediately head to the key of the dominant for the second subject. But that's not exactly what happens. Instead, we hear an 8-bar extension of the C major tonality. The cellos and basses never actually leave the tonic note, while the strings, and now the woodwinds, contribute a new motive based on a broadly ascending triad and a new distinctively articulated scale-wise motive. Then, after introducing these two new ideas, Beethoven reverts in part to motives from the first subject, especially motive B, and actually begins to modulate, or at least to drive a G major chord deeply into our consciousness by repeating it again and again fortissimo with the entire orchestra. Here is the transition. The second subject is an attractive one, 
quieter and much more lyrical than the first, and divided up nicely among the woodwinds, the strings now initially assuming an accompanying role, although they'll get their turn with the theme soon enough. The first four bars consists of first oboe and flute, trading off a lovely little phrase, starting with a half note and ending with a gentle descent of eighth notes. The second four bars introduce a catchy little offbeat syncopation pattern with alternating offbeat accents. Here's a simplified example, flute and oboe only. This is followed by a varied repeat of the second subject with first and second violins now leading the way. Here's a performance of the entire 16-bar section. At the end of my excerpt, you heard the second subject backing into what we're going to call the closing section. It's noisier and quite a bit more aggressive, rhythmically speaking, with heavy on-the-beat accents and marked by strongly directional and heavily doubled scale lines. I'll play it in a minute, but it's less remarkable than the section it leads into, a very quiet one, marked pianissimo. It begins with a plunge into G minor and a reference back to the opening bar of the second subject the half note tied to a descending line of eighth notes, in bassoons, cellos, and double basses, and the low strings continue the idea for several measures, although transforming the original descending eighth notes into chromatically ascending eighth notes. But more importantly, against this, the oboe introduces a somewhat new melodic idea. Like the second subject, it begins with a sustained note, a longer one this time, a whole note tied to a dotted half, followed again by descending motion. But the effect is rather different this time, at least in part because of the new articulation pattern involved. Here's a simplified example. So what exactly would we call this section? A number of commentators have made the point that Beethoven has done something unusual here. He is obviously making continued references to the second subject, but he also introduces a melodic idea that most listeners will perceive is largely new. Also, the switch to G minor is itself a bit uncommon at this point, sandwiched between a closing section in G major and, as we'll see shortly, a codetta in the same key. After only two bars in G minor in this new section, Beethoven tilts almost immediately toward B-flat major. But six measures later, he's back in G minor, and just a few measures after that, introduces a surprising modulation to E minor, which it turns out is really a stalking horse for G major, which he reaches just in time for the start of the codetta. So, for lack of a better term, we'll just refer to this section as a developmental episode. But the label is, of course, less important than the fact that Beethoven has introduced a reasonably unique feature here in an otherwise conventional framework. Beethoven may have, in general, been playing it safe with his first symphony, as quite a few commentators have suggested, but that does not mean that the work is completely devoid of personal, creative touches. Here's a performance excerpt beginning with the start of the closing section, which I described earlier and extending through the end of the developmental episode I just described. The codetta, which you just heard a little of, comes on very powerfully after a sweeping crescendo and makes clear references to motives A and B from the first subject, 
before lapsing into energetically repeated chords. It spends most of its time reaffirming the key of G major with repeated dominant tonic cadences, although it does briefly tonicize A minor along the way. It does eventually introduce a new melodic idea, a short two-measure phrase doubled in thirds in the oboes and bassoons against which the first violins provide a countermelody that does bear some slight resemblance to the second subject. Here is the codetta heading into the final cadence of the exposition and the turnaround back to the repeat of the exposition. The development section is an interesting, if unextraordinary, one. After a bold opening chord, it enters quietly with mode of B from the first subject in the first violins, alternating with syncopated chords reminiscent of the second part of the second subject. Tonally, it's not especially daring, although tension-producing full-diminished seventh chords are introduced into the mix already by the third measure. The next important thematic element enters 14 measures into the development section as Beethoven switches from G major to C minor and introduces mode of C from the first subject, that arpeggiated seventh chord originally heard in the fourth bar of the first theme. That ascending arpeggio probably seemed an incidental feature of the theme when first heard, but it now takes on a much greater significance. It's heard first in a forte piano explosion in the cellos and double basses, and immediately imitated by the woodwinds. Two measures later, it's imitated and extended quietly by the first violins. The idea is then repeated to express an F minor harmony as the motive continues to be tossed back and forth, and soon we find ourselves in a modulation to E flat major. As we continue on, an inverted version of motive C is heard in the first violins, as we crescendo quickly to a fortissimo climax before dropping down to piano again. Here's the first part of the development section. At this point, Beethoven recruits a motive from the modulatory transition section to serve as a link to a somewhat quieter and thinned down passage in which motive A, specifically the ascending dotted eighth sixteenth note figure, is tossed around energetically between woodwinds and strings. We remain in the key of E flat for much of the action, but sequential repetitions of the dotted rhythm figure soon cause us to abandon that key and move toward A minor. We hang tenaciously onto A minor, prolonging its dominant chord for several measures, while the woodwinds repeat a two-measure phrase derived from the codetta against repeated sixteenth-note bursts and sforzando accents in the strings. The return to the original tonic key of C major for the recapitulation is brought about by a series of descending whole notes in the woodwinds, which work their way down to G the dominant, from which the recapitulation is launched. Here's the second part of the development leading to the recapitulation.
as you may remember from previous episodes in which we talked about Beethoven's use of sonata form, the recapitulation usually features a return of the first and second subjects, but the intervening modulatory transition will be different because this time both subjects come back in the tonic key, so there's no need for a modulation. That is very much the case in this instance. The original transition has been much modified and considerably shortened. There are also some changes in the second subject to go along with the new key. Flute and clarinet now introduce the second subject, although oboes and bassoons continue to play an important role. The closing section is comparable to the one heard in the exposition, and more importantly, the unexpected developmental episode following the closing section is intact, although now naturally focusing on C minor rather than G minor. The Codetta section also closely resembles its counterpart in the exposition, but now we have a new coda, some 40 bars in length. Whereas some codas will act almost like second development sections and make quick visits to other tonal centers, this particular coda satisfies itself with a few quick tonicizations here and there, but never really strays far from C major. It could, however, be thought of as a second development section in the sense that it revisits motives from the exposition and toys with them one last time. In this case, motives A and B with motive C, the arpeggiated seventh chord, occasionally hinted at. Here is the coda in which motives A and B can be heard bouncing around, primarily in the strings and bassoons, beneath a slower-moving countermelody and later chords from the winds. The last 12 measures are given over to fortissimo assertions of the tonic chord, complete with a thundering timpani roll to bring the movement to a close. The second movement of the symphony, in F major, takes the place of the traditional slow movement, although in fact, the tempo, marked andante cantabile con moto, in 3-8 time, isn't particularly slow. The first subject for this is another sonata form movement, lacks the lyrical pathos we sometimes associate with a Beethoven slow movement, but this sort of slow movement is by no means unprecedented. In fact, the slow movement of the string quartet in C minor, which we looked at in the last episode, has been described by Tovey as the more enterprising twin brother of this movement, which also makes use of what Tovey describes as a kittenish theme. I would probably substitute the word coquettish here, but I see his point. A theme which, it turns out, is treated like a fugue subject. The subject presented in the second violins consists of three relatively independent ideas. The first starts on the fifth of the scale and climbs up the tonic triad rather sedately. The second part, continuing the staccato articulation marks of the first, descends back down the scale, employing dotted 16th 32nd note rhythms, ultimately ending on the tonic note. Here is part one going into part two. The third part, not originally included when the violas and cellos begin their imitation at the fifth six measures later, moves back up the scale by legato steps, turns around on another dotted note rhythm, and ends up on the second scale degree. It initially serves as something of a counter-subject against the initial imitative entries. Here's the entire subject, all three parts. 
Four bars after the initial imitation, the bassoons and basses come in with the first two bars of the subject, and then the entire subject is heard back on the original pitch level in flutes, oboes, and first violins, this time including the third part of the subject as well. Then a new cadential motive is introduced and repeated, and after just six bars, we come to a stop on a dominant chord. Let's hear that much in an actual performance. The second subject, presented by the first violins and beginning in C major, is clearly related to the first stylistically, but distinguished by its opening interval of an ascending major sixth. The subject tilts ever so briefly toward D minor, but eight bars later closes solidly on C major. An eight-measure variant of the second subject is then heard in the second violins, with a new, very active countermelody in violin one and it too cadences solidly in C major eight bars later. Here is the second subject, both parts. What follows is sometimes described as the closing section, but which seems simply to be a natural extension of the second subject, now focusing on repeated dotted note rhythms, which are somewhat related to those found in the first subject. After a series of weak beat chordal accents, we are led into the brief codetta, the opening of which is marked by an unusual solo roll for the timpani, which repeat a series of dotted 16-32nd note rhythms which, along with repeated triplet motives in flute and first violin, take us to the end of the exposition. Here is the closing section, heading into the brief codetta. The development section is not terribly long, but it is rather clever. It begins with a variant of motive A from the first subject played in C minor, and the first violins echoed by the seconds. But the key of C minor quickly morphs into D flat major by the reinterpretation of a chromatic chord. And then two things happen at once. The strings and bassoons take over the repeated dotted 16-32nd note rhythms previously assigned to the timpani, while the woodwinds begin a series of large ascending leaps marked by sharp dynamic contrast, which evokes the second subject. Eventually, the timpani enter to reprise their role, and we hear a number of sharp dynamic contrasts as the development of motive A variants builds to a climax, after which the music quiets, the texture thins, and the recapitulation begins. 
Here is the development section leading into the first few bars of the recapitulation. As you heard at the end of my excerpt, the subject, which is heard again in the second violins, has a new staccato cello countermelody to accompany it. Fugal imitation is again involved, and the second subject, now in F major, closing section and codetta all follow along without a great deal of change. But there is a new coda, which not surprisingly glances back affectionately at the first subject, focusing at first perhaps surprisingly, on the third part of the first subject, which it develops sequentially. But in the end, the entire first subject is referenced, along with the repeated dotted 16th, 32nd note rhythm figures, as the movement comes to a subdued conclusion. The third movement is indicated as a minuet, but as numerous commentators have pointed out, it is quite definitely a scherzo, marked allegro molto e vivace, and in 3-4 time. Beethoven scholar Louis Lockwood, who finds the slow movement we just discussed to be perfunctory when compared to those of the piano sonatas and trios of the early years, is considerably more impressed with this scherzo, which he refers to as a long, brilliant, and ambitious movement, adding that no other composer of the time could have written even a phrase of the minuetto, which leaps out of the symphony as its most memorable moment. The main theme of the first section in C major demonstrates an almost propulsive energy. It starts on the fifth of the scale, marked piano, and dashes up an octave and a half higher, gathering energy and volume as it goes. After the eight-measure ascending theme repeats, a chromatically inflected, contrasting middle section theme is introduced, one which parallels the first rhythmically. It begins in C minor, although it moves to D-flat major rather quickly, where it produces a little tension by fragmenting and developing the new motives, often punctuated by sharp accents. 
Eventually, the texture thins, and Beethoven brings about a very clever modulation, pulling us back to C major for a robust repeat of the first theme. This is followed by a lighter codetta, which, adorned by dynamic, offbeat sforzando accents, continues to develop motives from the contrasting middle section theme. In the last few measures, repeated dominant tonic cadences take us to the double bar and a repeat starting with the contrasting middle section. Here is the contrasting middle section, the modulation from D flat major to C major, and the return of the first section without the repeat. After the dramatically ascending theme that began the minuet, the quieter trio, featuring a thinner, wind-dominated texture, compensates by staying stubbornly on a single note, at least until the first and second violins sweep in at the end of the phrase to remind us that this movement is really all about frantic motion. In part two of the trio, the texture initially reduced to clarinets and horns, we hear a variant of the first section theme, now alternating with a flippant new descending scale-wise motive in the first violins. Soon the texture thickens, and the volume crescendos to fortissimo, with ever-increasing sforzando accents. More swirling string scales conduct us to the end of the trio and a repeat of the minuet section. Here's the second part of the trio, without the repeat back to the minuet. This movement is, as Lockwood has suggested, a singular one. If the second movement may be seen in part as an homage to his counterpoint teacher, Albrechtsberger, this minuet, or more accurately, Scherzo in Disguise, is purely and uniquely Beethoven, from the sweeping ascending scale lines and deft modulations to and from remote keys, to the glibly repetitive melody of the trio, and the coquettish comments by the violins, which keep everything moving forward with high spirits and a great deal of energy. The finale in C major and 2-4 time may be less remarkable, but it is no less exuberant or good-natured. The unusually coy slow introduction, marked adagio, begins ominously enough with a fortissimo fermata on the dominant note, played by the entire orchestra. But it quickly becomes, as Tovey has suggested, a Haydn-esque joke when we hear a quiet and quite timid group of phrases, each a little longer than the last, revealed one after another, the effect of which Tovey has characterized as letting the cat out of the bag a little bit at a time. This series of phrases slowly but surely moves up the scale, peaking with a fermata on the seventh of a pianissimo dominant seventh chord on G. After the fermata, the tempo marking shifts to Allegro Molto e Vivace, and the same ascending scale pattern, previously dished out in small bite-sized chunks, now shoots up like a staccato skyrocket, 
and propels us into the first subject, an unusually frisky one, mixing quarters, eighths, and sixteenth notes, with the second four bars a varied repeat of the first four. The first eight bars close on the dominant after repeatedly alternating tonic and dominant chords over a repeated tonic pedal in the bass line. The second half of the first subject introduces a new, somewhat simpler idea in the first violins, doubled in thirds by the seconds. It begins by leaping up an octave from the fifth scale degree to a pattern combining repeated staccato eighth notes followed by a descending step, a two-measure phrase that is repeated down a step twice, the second time with an extended cadential tag delivering us back to the tonic chord. Against this, we hear from cellos and bassoons an equally simple but very effective ascending countermelody. This entire eight-measure idea is then repeated, with the melody and its harmonization now split up among bassoons, clarinets, and oboes, with flutes and violins taking up the ascending countermelody. All of this crescendos up to fortissimo, and we hear a solid cadence on tonic to end the first subject. The transition that follows is really quite interesting. It introduces a number of colorful details and fleeting but effective motives that keep the energy level high. It begins with broad horn fifths, played not only by the horns, but doubled by trumpets and oboes, and accompanied by emphatic contributions from the timpani. New motives are also introduced in the violins, echoing the first subject motives to a degree, but primarily based on rapid descending lines. The actual modulation to the key of the dominant takes a while to materialize, and right after it does, we are immediately reminded of the ascending countermelody I noted before, which is now taken up and extended quite prominently by violas, bassoons, cellos, and double basses. Here's an excerpt starting with the second part of the first subject and leading into the modulatory transition. There is not a great deal to the second subject. It's based on a mildly syncopated, repeated melodic pattern in the strings, with winds providing more sustained countermelodies against it. Harmonically, it simply alternates between tonic and dominant chords, now in the key of G. After eight bars, the melody is extended and varied sequentially, and the countermelodies in oboe and flute become more active. Beethoven begins to introduce a little more harmonic variety as we head to the closing section, which is not so much characterized by a new theme as by the introduction of a new series of syncopated three-note motives marked with sforzando accents and punctuated rather aggressively by the timpani. Something like a codetta arrives when the syncopated motives cease and we hear a series of accented, full-bodied chords and flashing scale lines moving up by step until we come to a cadence on the dominant of G major. Here is the second subject, closing section, marked by the repeated syncopated motives, and codetta, driving to the end of the exposition with the repeat sending us back to the first subject.
In the development section, Beethoven initially backs away from the massive orchestral sonorities that had closed the exposition, preferring instead to trot out the opening bars of the first subject, very quietly, employing them to bring about a modulation, first to D minor and shortly thereafter to B flat major. But Beethoven is soon back to blazing away with all barrels as he arpeggiates down a series of chords over a B-flat pedal. The ascending scale-wise passage from the first subject soon returns, bouncing around a bit in the texture against counter-melodies which are themselves drawn from the first subject, and later from the syncopated motives first heard in the closing section. Variants of the opening motive from the first subject, sometimes inverted, are repeated, imitated, and sequenced. At one point, the ascending countermelody associated with the first subject takes center stage, asserted boldly by cellos, basses, and bassoons. It's all certainly energetic enough, but some commentators have found it perhaps a little uninspired or old-fashioned. Here's the end of the exposition going into the development section and then into the opening bars of the recapitulation. Perhaps the most surprising thing about the recapitulation is the degree to which the coda section recreates the beginning of the movement, even the playful hesitations of the opening scale leading to the first subject. But the coda has little interest in the second subject, leading some commentators to describe the movement as a sonata rondo, which is not unreasonable. But instead Beethoven summons up some very military-sounding horn calls, rather in Mozart style, as its final memorable idea. Here is the final part of the coda in which Beethoven revisits the opening theme of the movement. Okay, let's take a minute to try to summarize Beethoven's accomplishment here in the First Symphony. Over the years, historians and various other commentators have generally been kind to Beethoven's First Symphony. The criticisms leveled at the work back when it was first introduced, the out-of-the-key opening to the first movement, or the overemphasis on wind instruments in the orchestration, have generally not been taken that seriously in recent decades, nor has the contention of one late 18th-century critic that the symphony was a caricature of Haydn pushed to absurdity. But insofar as there is a problem with Beethoven's first symphony, at least in the eyes of some critics and historians, it probably has more to do with lack of daring. Lockwood states, as he prepared to give the public a first taste of his prowess as a symphonic composer, Beethoven played it safe, rather than provoke his audience. 
He avoids the quirks and eccentricities, such as the abrupt contrast of dynamics, accents, tempos, and musical ideas that had come to be the order of the day in his sonatas and chamber music, but that had annoyed his critics. So the first remains a trial run, not a work that comes up to the standard of the sublime that Johann Georg Sulzer and other estheticians had set for the symphony, nor, in practical terms, the artistic standard set by Haydn and Mozart in their later symphonies. It's possible that Beethoven might actually have agreed with Lockwood to some extent. When dickering with a potential publisher for the symphony, Beethoven put a surprisingly low price on it when it was offered up with a group of other compositions, some of which he praised more highly. I think it's quite likely that Beethoven would have agreed that this was not a sublime work. And yet it always seems a bit unfair to judge an early work such as this by comparing it with Beethoven's later accomplishments. It's true that some of his early works, piano sonatas such as the F minor sonata, Opus 2, No. 1, and the Pathetic Sonata in C minor, Opus 13, and certain movements from the Opus 18 string quartets, provide more direct glimpses into Beethoven's future greatness. But that does not change the fact that there is a great deal to appreciate in Beethoven's Symphony No. 1, and even just a little bit to marvel at, particularly his scherzo masquerading as a mere minuet. At any rate, we are finished for this episode. In the next, we'll take a look at a couple of his violin sonatas, number 4 in A minor, opus 23, and number 5 in F major, opus 24, the so-called Spring Sonata. <laughs> ¶¶ 